0: This week, Profane Faith is brought to you by Theopoetics, a gathering for those whose interests live at or near the intersections of justice-seeking religious reflection with spirituality, imagination, the arts, and embodiment. The interplay of these areas with one another has come to be named as Theopoetics, the focus of the event. On March 9th and 10th of 2018, this conference will take place. More details to follow, but stay tuned because this one is fixing to be off the hook that america is a
1: place where all things are possible that is some group of people thousands i hate you naturally no 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 not god bless america god damn america that's in the
0: Welcome to Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins, faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. I'm your host, Daniel White-Hodge. Welcome back. Welcome back, everyone, to Profane Faith. It's your boy, Daniel White-Hodge. How y'all doing out there? Y'all living it up? For those listening now, particularly live and in charge, this is um, this December. It's uh, cold in Chicago. Um, uh, And my body is starting to um, it's actually starting to adjust. I went out today and I only needed a beanie and a scarf. It was 34. And I was like, oh, it's not 20 with a wind chill of 12. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, seeing posts from some folks, man, I've been on Facebook and social media where they're like, Man, it's forty or it's fifty degrees and it's it's raining in sixty, man, yo, come on, man. Come on. But I guess it's all relative, right? You know what I'm saying? When I used to live in California, um, man, oh man, oh man. I used to man, it would rain and I'd be like, Oh heck no, man. I ain't going outside, right? Southern Californians, they don't go outside when it rains, you know what I'm saying? It's like, nah, we is today's movie night. <laughs> movie day. We just gonna sit inside and eat chili. Um, it's just funny. I remember when here in Chicago, when we had the really, really bad winter, this was like three years ago, probably now four. Um, and it was like, oh, it was miserable, y'all. It was like, you know, you were happy when it got to like 10 degrees. You're like, oh my God, it's 10 degrees man, and you know, ice everywhere and everything, man. And I remember, um, I had a conference that I went to and I left. It was in the middle of February and I went out to San Diego and I remember getting off the plane and feeling like, Oh my gosh, it was like 50 in a breeze. And I remember you could tell at this conference, other people who from the East coast and the Midwest, cause we all had our jackets off short sleeves on, man. I was sweating and people there in California were like, man, it's cold, man. And I think it dropped down that night at like 46 and I was still in short sleeves, man. So it really is relative, man. Um, well, this week, y'all, speaking of weather, that's what we do in the Midwest now, and I've, I've become acculturated to to talking about the weather. I've taken almost two minutes just to talk about the weather. Um, uh, but this week on the show, I am excited because I... Get to talk to one of my uh, one of my good friends, Dr. Biko Mandela Gray or Mandela. Excuse me. Biko Mandela Gray. Uh, I know I I, I messed that up a little. The Mandela, the the middle part um, in the in the introduction. But uh, Dr. Gray is a professor out at Syracuse University in the colleges of arts and science. He is. uh, Well, I met him at AAR as as a lot of good people that I meet are at AAR. Uh, Dr. Gray's work operates at the nexus and interplay between continental philosophy of religion and theories and methods in African-American religion. Man, huh? What y'all think about that? His research is primarily on the connection between race, subjectivity, religion, and embodiment, exploring how these four categories play on one another, In the concrete space of the human experience, he is also interested in the religious implications of social justice movements. He is currently working on a book project that explores how contemporary racial justice movements like Black Lives Matter demonstrate new ways of theorizing the connection between embodiment, religion and subjectivity. That's some deep stuff right there, yo. So I knew I first heard this brother present back in like 2011, uh, and I knew I said, "Man, this cat is deep." So I, I was, I was like, and he was posting on Facebook, and I was like, "I got to get him on the show." So I was fortunate; uh our schedules lined up. I got him on the show, and uh, we are just going in about a conversation of what does it mean to teach and be black, and to talk about some of the things that are affecting us um in this world today. How does it mean to engage with religious studies? From a non-Christian centered perspective, one of the things I love doing is to really disrupting that Christian center that oftentimes when we talk about religion, right? You talk about the, you know, some of the circles and bowls that we're in, um, Oftentimes we come from those bowls and in those spheres, right, as as Peter Berger sometimes refers to as the sacred canopy, right? Um, these spheres, these canopies that we're in, it's easy to get consumed with the language and the cultural mores of that environment and never understand anything else. Right. And that's with anything, whether it be, you know, within hip hop or within being particularly micro cultures and stuff, you know, you know, some of the acronyms or, you know, some of the sayings and some of the inside jokes. Um, and so there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. It's just when we get consumed with that. And so Biko is an amazing brother. He helps us to begin to kind of think through and beyond that and disrupting that kind of heteronormative uh, hegemony, if you will, of Christianity that really centers itself around whiteness, white supremacy uh, and, and evangelicalism, uh, something that we've went in hard on, on this show here on Profane Faith. So, um, yeah, he's and, and we also just get a chance to just talk about, you know, what is it like to be a black male teaching in a place particularly like Syracuse, right? Um, you know, a few weeks ago, I had a, um, a good, another good friend of mine on Travis Harris. You can listen to that episode, um, and talking about what it means to be in the Academy, uh, especially on the come up. Travis is getting his PhD. Dr. Biko just graduated with his uh, PhD here in 2017. And so, you know, you're hearing two sides of it. What does it mean to be your first year teaching in a, an environment? You're the professor, you're not the assistant, you're not the TA, you're not the, the backup you're not just the greater you are the person in charge um and so we go in on that um i was just reading a study here um the other day that was talking about um black male teachers and if you follow me on facebook um, i posted this on my page and it, it, it gave a report that less than two percent of u.s public school teachers are black men and i can tell you right now my daughter who's now 11 uh has never had a black male as a teacher never uh, she had an Indian woman, um, friend with her. Let's see, when she was in kindergarten, first grade was white. Second grade was white. Third grade was white male. Fourth grade was white. Fifth grade now is another white woman. So, black men, like it's interesting just to see you know what that means. Like we look at those numbers, right? Less than two percent. And there's a video on that's connected with it and looking at, you know, particularly in K through 12. Right. Because I know when we get them in college, it's almost too late in certain regards. Like it's not completely late, but it's almost too late because it really it, you know, your formation really does happen. Right. And, you know, in, in, in elementary school, you know, middle school, high school, by the time you get to college, you know, there's a lot of things that are there now i going to have an episode here on, you know, what it looks like about delayed adolescence and, you know, how does that affect pedagogy and teaching? But uh, it, it is important to note though. I mean, I think, in, you know, especially when we're thinking about, um, you know, representation, who looks like you, all that stuff. I mean, that's for, for a college student to go through or a high school student to go through and never had a black teacher. I mean, that is, and I'm thinking back, even man, this is crazy, right? I mean, because I think back even to my own high school experience. Now, I graduated class of 92, um, but I'm trying to think, who were the black male professors? I mean, there there were none, really. We had Coach Titus Dozier, Mr. Coach Dozier. But, you know, I think he taught maybe, like, uh, history or something like that. Um, I can't even remember, to be honest with you. So, because um, I never took him. I never took him. I don't think I only took him. I think, he, you know, his main thing was coaching. I think he did football and he, think he did basketball. Um, But black men now black women, again, I'm not leaving black women out by no means. Um, But I do think, you know, particularly with black men, you know, what the, what does that mean? What does that representation mean? Especially when you think about media and the representation of black men, you know, you're either dying, you're going to jail, uh, you're too fat or you're just a comedian or a rapper. Right. Or some kind of entertainer. Um, And I can tell you, you know, a lot of young black men that I run into at, in the, at the college level just had a conversation with a brother last week. You know, his and he's his identity is lost because, you know, he's not playing football right now. And and this is a conversation I've had multiple times, you know, with young, particularly young black men. And what does that mean? And so this is a conversation long overdue. And we're not necessarily going to resolve anything. But I think it's interesting just to hear uh, Dr. Gray's perspective on teaching and, and what that looks like. He's very active on social media, which is a which is a. A major, major thing, and particularly for his generation, right? You know, his generation coming through. He's kind of in that not necessarily millennial Gen Y. He's in that in that interesting mix right there. Uh, but the brother's had a PhD from Rice University, an MA from Rice University, an MTS Master of Theological Studies, I believe that's Master of Theological Studies from Vanderbilt Divinity School, and then a BA from Xavier University in Louisiana. So this brother's educated. <laughs> he's educated. Um, and I'll post his bio and Twitter and all that good stuff in the um in the uh excuse me in the show notes um as well he's uh, co-authored a few books a couple different books um that i'll also post in there as well um but it's just a he's just a, a a great talk in in regards to what it what does it look like to actually teach religion in a non-christian way if that makes sense Y'all, I am definitely in a space now where I'm looking at what does a non-colonized, non-white perspective of Christianity look like. And this is the journey I'm embarking on. And one of the things I know at some point I'm going to have to make a journey back to Africa. I'm going to have to go to Egypt. I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to have to go to these places and look firsthand because so much of it has been colonized. So much of Christianity, it's it's hard to decipher sometimes what is colonized theology of how we understand just even eschatology right even pneumatology how do we understand the holy spirit how do we understand just ontology the the essence of being from a non white cisgendered male lens how do we not how do we overcome that and that's it, it's a challenge it's a real challenge you know um you know as i've said before on this show You know, I publish and write books and a lot of these publishers, you know, continue to put out white men uh, as the authoritative leader in theological discussion. Um, And, you know, not that you can't necessarily learn anything, but it's different when you get an ethnic minority in there who is conscious. All right. So I want to make that clear. Not just any any ethnic minority would do. Right. And that's a lot of times what white supremacy does is like, let's just go get anybody, stick them in there and then it's just a mess. Right. It's just a daggone mess. And you're like, whoa, <laughs> what happened? You need somebody who's conscious. You need somebody who's able to identify with who they are and their being, whether it be their sexual orientation, their race, uh, their gender, all of that stuff. Their socioeconomic status and also their history. And I think those are aspects of being conscious, being woke, as young people say, you know, what I'm saying. And so um, I think that's important because those bring different perspectives straight up. You know, when you read Dr. Will Gaffney, you know, and her womanist hermeneutic of the Old Testament, that's going to give you a different understanding of Joshua and David than a white male who grew up in the suburbs, heard dipped and died and heard, you know, Billy Graham and all these things growing up. You're going to get a different perspective, and that is important in your spiritual development. I can't stress that enough. And I imagine if you're listening for this, to this show now, you know, you in it. You in it to win it. And, you you know, you a fan. Thank you to all the folks out there who subscribed and who liked. Um, but we, you know, I'm pushing. I'm pushing to kind of, you know, do, to, to think beyond what we've been told, right? What is the what is the known border? Let's go beyond that. And so this is where Dr. Gray uh, comes in. So let's check him out. This is an amazing conversation. Uh, check out what he has to say. And then I'll wrap it up at the end here. Cool? All right. Here he is welcome back folks to profane face this your boy daniel white hodge here and i have a good friend of mine on today another brother that i met at aar i'm telling y'all aar is the place to be dr biko mandela gray mandela, mandela gray yes yes sir welcome to the show brother
1: it's good to be here. It's good to see you again, too, but I see I ain't seen you in a while, so it's good to lay eyes on you it, It's
0: uh, <laughs> absolutely, man. It has been a while, I man, I think the last time I saw you, because were you in San Antonio last year? Oh, I wasn't, so I
1: didn't get a chance to see too many people, so yeah, yes, I haven't been here in a couple of years yeah. but it's good to
0: no, that's it, that's it, that's it man no i just I just remember I think you presented a paper in the hip hop panel. Like twenty eleven or twenty ten, I can't remember. It was one of those, I think we were in the West Coast city, and I was mm. like, "Man, this brother's deep, man!" And he's like, "Oh, yeah, I'm getting my PhD, working with uh, Dr. Anthony Penn, correct?"
1: Yeah, that, yeah, I was working with him at the time, and okay. yes, yeah, so, th- so things were yeah. Well, at the time, that was a uh, man. that was twenty eleven, wasn't it? Time flies. Time flies, brother. Yeah, I remember presenting a, a phenomenological analysis of Kanye West work at the time, and, and so that was a man. That was that was a while ago. Yeah, it
0: was. yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> what have you been up to since, man? What has brought you on this? Uh, you know, you a religious scholar at Syracuse, correct?
1: Yeah, yeah, As professor, of, uh, assistant professor of American religion uh, wow. there. Yeah,
0: so. wow. Man. Yeah. So, what's brought you uh, along this 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 page, and especially in this socio political era that we find ourselves in?
1: You know, it's you know interesting, actually. I, um, I was at a kind of crossroads, so I give you the, the sort of the long and the short, the fat and the skinny at the same time. Yeah. Uh, so say, I was working on my PhD in uh, in 2010. Okay. Um, and so I was doing just sort of you know theoretical work, going through coursework. Things were going fine, uh, and then um, 2012 happened, and Trayvon Martin was killed. Mm. Uh, yeah. And then and then 2013 happened, and I remember thinking to myself. Right after Trayvon got killed, I remember thinking to myself, "This is our generation's Emmett Till," and so I remember Mm. thinking to myself and saying, Mm. "Yeah," and saying, "Okay, we'll think through this. We'll we'll make we'll make some sense of this, but 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 it's different this time, right?" That was the question that I kept wrestling with: is it has to be different this time? Um, And then 2013 happened, and we realized it wasn't different. George Zimmerman gets off, right, (laughs) right, right. right? at that moment, um, I'm working through qualifying exams and, and, oh, a good wow. friend, yeah, and a good friend of mine, we were sitting there and I was reading Martin Heidegger's Being in Time at the time. So I was reading some sort of con- complex philosophical stuff, right? Yeah. And, and, uh, me and me and my friend, she and I were sitting there. We were both in grad school at the time. And this white dude walks up to the table and he goes, he hears us talking about this verdict and how upset we were. And uh, he walks up to the table and he goes can I talk to you for a moment? Oh, and I said, and I said, no. and I, said no. I said, I don't know if today's the right day, man. Like I, I like let him know this. He goes, I said, I feel for, like today may not be the right day. I don't know if I have it. Long and short, he sits down and he says, well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that I'm not sorry about the verdict. And I said, that's the wrong way to start this conversation. Mm. So he, yeah. So he was in law school and said that it wasn't murder, that it wasn't a, uh, that, that, that they should have charged him with manslaughter and they would have gotten him. And I said, you're, you're talking about technicalities right. when life was on the line. So long and the short, I, I began to become more invested in social justice work at that point.
0: Okay, um,
1: Yeah, and so then 2014, Michael Brown is killed. Um, in January of 2014, someone, I was doing my PhD at Houston at the time. And okay. so uh, someone was killed by, one of my good friends, her son was killed by cops in January 2014. Mike Brown is killed in August. Eric Garner's killed in July. Tamir Rice is killed in October. I think mm. John is killed in October, if I'm not mistaken. Rakia right. Boyd is killed that year. I mean, right. there's a host of deaths that happen. And uh, from that point on, I found myself in December of 2014, marching around a galleria with a megaphone and didn't know what I <laughs> doing. <laughs> uh, and long in the short, I, I said, okay, this PhD has to do work. It has to walk. It has to do some things yeah. that it has to, it has to have um, feet. And uh, finished up my PhD and um, was faced at a crossroads, applied to become a professor, but was also thinking about some community organizing work at the time. And yeah. somehow sat down, talk about a faith journey. The universe said, man, I don't know how to tell you this. Uh, you've got to go to Syracuse. Um, and I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes sir And that's that's how i ended up here to be honest with you okay. so that's a long and short way so long and short i teach classes now on black lives matter religion i teach classes on social justice issues and race and religion in the united states wow uh, be- because i think that you know that's number one what they hired before and number two i wouldn't be i wouldn't have integrity as a, as a scholar if that wasn't the case so wow.
0: yeah wow you know, Man, brother, I mean, you know, and so many folks who have come on here, man, have cited Trayvon and Mike Brown as a turning point, as a moment, a ripple in the space time continuum of social justice and activism. Um, I know for me, it was uh, Troy Davis. It was like back in the like back. was like 2010, 2011. And it just it because it was just it felt like after that, it was just like, boom, boom, boom. And then when Trayvon hit the national scene, it was like and not that before that. Brothers and sisters weren't involved in it, but I think there was still a sense of like, oh, I think we do this. You know, it's like, we got Obama. It's like, okay, sure. I mean, he's got problems or whatever, but we got a black man in the White House, okay? Right, right. So how have you... Now that we're where you're at and I'm going to I definitely want to quote some of your, your Facebook posts, man, because I, I want to get into some of these cause These are some really good ones, man, because this is what I think. I mean, I love when scholars say I got to put my doctor to work because I, I come from the same environment. I'm like, I just can't sit in the ivory tower publishing papers, which are good. You got to do well, it for tenure. You got yep. you got to put your theory and your methods out there. But it's like, what is that doing for the community and the people um, around you?
1: absolutely
0: so where do you find absolutely. yourself now doing and particularly with after the november election a year ago
1: i found. i, I mean it's interesting i find myself in, in in uh two in, in sort of a dual position um this is you know du bois double consciousness there are two yeah. modes of, two modes of thinking one of which is is a negro and the other one is american right That there is <laughs> there's these two modes of consciousness that have to operate and so my conversation to my folks to people of color to to the, the the legitimate white allies is, all right, y'all, we got to learn how to do this differently now. Right. Yeah. That, this, that this that this kind of organizing is no longer fight the power, but community building. We've got yeah. to sit down and learn how to build institutions together. Right. That, that those are the mm. conversations that I have with friends and with 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 comrades. Right. We have to build institutions together. We have to find the resources and the infrastructure to build institutions together, um, and so in that, and so in that regard, like that's what I, that's the that's the Negro side. But um, when hmm. I talk to when I talk to white Americans, and specifically white liberal Americans, this is yeah. where things. Um, start to shift i have to have a different conversation which is we've been hollering about this since 20 since, since 2011 as you said right yeah we've been making claims about injustice making claims about the structural in the structural problems of white supremacy mm. for at least since 2011 if not since we got here in 1619 so for us this isn't a new conversation right that right. that's the thats interesting thing and and you have to constantly and consistently remind white liberals that you're angry at Trump when Trump is not the primary problem it's the people who put him in office it's right. the institutions that propped up the possibility of a of a quite frankly an illiterate white man to run a country yes Do you understand what i'm getting at like uh, i mean yes. there's, a, there's a particular way in which white supremacy props up white normativity and what happens is is that white liberals got caught up in the Obama swirl. And so they thought that, they, right, they got they got hype, right? They were like, we threw one in. We, we, yeah. We're right on right. progress is happening. Like, and we're working for them and things are, and you're failing to realize that Barack Obama had to play the game of whiteness to keep the job right. in the first place. Yeah. So if the, if, if the country's organized around whiteness, why are we confused? And why are we confused when when whiteness says we don't want a black man in the White House, right? Like we want the whitest of white men we could ever ever vote in. And I think and I think we just I think my my conversation to white liberals is now you all have made you all have to take responsibility for your culpability in this. And mm. don't tell me about white working class voters. Let's talk about the fact that you didn't galvanize people of color to come out right. in twenty sixteen. And people of color are working class too. Yes, yes. Right. Yes. Right. So, so I I I I'll leave it there. But my, my big takeaway I'm with Tanasi Coates on this mm-hmm. is that Democrats are now still thinking how do we get the Obama Trump voters? And I'm thinking to myself those are those are lost causes. You don't yeah. go for folks who because they didn't vote for Obama because they were they were doing the right thing. They voted because they were selfish because he told them he was going to give them something. Right. Right. Oh man. So anyway, so, so we have to think about that um, and and continue to think about that even now,
0: man. Well, I mean, I think it's interesting because man, white liberals love them. Some Obama, he is like their Messiah, man. I mean, I have a, you know, students and everything, you know, I see their Instagram and they're just like, Oh, I'm so Obama. Oh, Michelle Obama's like, y'all act like he's the only Negro y'all ever seen. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm trying to think, man, like, this engagement, because I have had some of the most lethal racism thrown at me since the November election, with people who stand with her and Bernie twenty sixteen, and and you know it's like, oh my gosh, like, what do you think this 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 stuff came from? So, what are some of the tactics, things that you bring into the classroom that to help students, particularly at a place like Syracuse, engage yeah. in these? subject matters right um you know and particularly taking a course you know on black lives matter i'd be definitely fascinated uh, to compare notes i had i have a class on black lives matter as well but i, w- I would love to hear yeah. how you engage that and is it primarily african-americans is it are we preaching to the choir in these courses or, or are there genuine folks coming in saying man i want to learn
1: no, it's interesting. So the Black Lives Matter course will be taught in the spring. And nice. so I'm, and so I'm still working through some of the details of that. But I think uh, at the end of the day, I'm going to I'm, I've got some things that I'll probably work out. But I'm going to take in that particular course. It's going to be very difficult for for, for white students, I think, because mm. I'm not going to play games. Um, I'm going to be very upfront and honest uh, about what structural racism looks like uh but 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 in terms of the classroom this semester i found it because this was my first semester at syracuse i've taught classes before adjuncting as you, you, you're you probably familiar with oh. yeah yeah so i was adjuncting when i was finishing my phd but actually actually got to teach classes i wanted to teach this time and so I taught an in, intro to African American religion course, and one of the things that I always do pedagogically is relate things to contemporary realities, right? Mm-hmm. So Sh- Charlottesville had just happened, oh man, uh, at the beginning of this semester, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So, and so I walk in class, like you know, after the first day of the syllabus, and I, I, I tell them, hey, this is what we're going to be thinking about. Second day, I get right into it, and I tell them, I say, hey, like this is an intro to Afam religion, but we have to ask questions about what happened in Charlottesville, right? And so I and I told him, I said, my goal in this course is to show you how race and religion are inextricably intertwined, right? So that what mm. happened in Charlottesville was a was an, a faith act. It was a, it was an act of public mm. theological discourse, okay. right? Now people don't want to talk about it that way, but but. <laughs> But there was a theology of whiteness that was operative there and that continues to operate in this country by both conservatives and liberals alike. Mm. It just so happened that the ugly side of this theology showed up at that statue. Uh, Right. And so long in the short, long in the short, we started thinking through contemporary realities. I had a bunch of football players in my class and the class is about half white, half black, sort of. Yeah, it was about half and half. And a lot of my black uh, students were, foot- were, were SU football players. And I, I, I decided, I said, we were talking about slavery. And I said, I want you to think about what it ma- means to be objectified. And so I said, we're going to go to the auction block. I mean, oh. the NFL combine. Oh. I mean, the auction block. I mean, the NFL combine. Ooh. I mean, the auction block. And so we showed a clip of, yeah. um, of Odell Beckham, right? I don't know if you saw this clip of Odell Beckham. Uh, getting uh, auctioned off uh, for a fantasy draft at oh, his head. No, his and, <laughs> yes. So we put it up there, and so it w- it's it's been it's been it's been moves like that that have helped, honestly, to sort of disorient the students enough for them to think through issues of race and specifically race in relation to things like religion. What does it mean, for example, that Mike Brown was called an angry demon, and this was justification for right. his, you know, for 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 the acquittal of the non indictment so we worked through some of that,
0: man. Yeah. You know, that's interesting. You say that, and the the opening the theme song that I have for this this podcast that's that's one of the quotes that I use. You know, like he was a demon, you know, it's like this this honor. So I would love then to the talk with you because I know I've heard you in different presentations, man. How does African American Christian theology play? into this like what what are the factors i, I teach a doctoral course um mm. w- uh, with uh there's these emerging leaders and they want to go back into the community and stuff and so one of the things we're wrestling with is what are what are the hindrances of, of african-american theology but also what are the things that have propelled things forward and how do we galvanize or do we need to restructure it i mean how do you how do you see that how do you see that playing out i mean um I, I don't know. I mean, let, let me start there with with yes. that and see if that, that makes sense, because I've, I've seen you go in on some on some folks, but I I definitely want to get your take yeah. on that.
1: Yeah, i um I'm. So a full... <laughs> <laughs> so all cards on the table, yes. I'm a philosopher of religion and uh, not as much a theologian, and I'm also an agnostic Christian philosopher of come religion. Come on, come um, so on. That... See,
0: exactly. This is exactly why I wanted you on, brother. I, I mean, just <laughs> put that in there. So
1: I think I think one of the things we have to think about is the promise of James Cone's work in the 60s and the 70s. Mm -hmm. The promise of the work was its critical edge. I want to be clear about this. The promise of the work was the deconstruction of white theology as universal theology. I think that is important for us to understand Mm -hmm. the pitfall of the work. Was its teleological focus on a very specific understanding of, of of liberation. This is why the womanist had to come in and say you forgot about black women, wow. and then and then queer theologians have to come in and say you forgot <laughs> about queer folk, right? And so and so and so, what you see is is that black theological discourse, yeah. and not yeah. not even not just the liberation variety, has to wrestle with what does it mean that we are holding on to a symbol, right? A symbol that. White theologians, white conservative theologians hold on to to do damage against us. Mm. Ooh. Do, you see, do, you see, do you see what I'm saying? Okay. We're both black, theolo- black theologians and white theologians are using the same term. Now, they mean something different mm-hmm. by the term. Right? Okay. And I, I want to be very clear about that. But... Everyone's saying they believe in God, and and it puts us back in 1973 where we have to ask William Jones's philosophical question Is God a white racist? Yeah, you have to ask that question now because black folk are saying God is on their side, and white folk are saying God is on their side, and historically, white people keep winning this game. So, what do we do? Do you see what I'm saying? So, what do but but at the same time. Black, black religious history tells us that black people have been tapping into something bigger than themselves. Mm. So, so let's be clear. I'm not asking for us to abandon or go atheist here. This sure. is why I'm an agnostic Christian, right? I'm not asking us to go all the way to the other side. I, I think that there is a stopgap. And I think that stopgap is to name that black people have consistently tapped into something larger than themselves. But I, but I think we'd be better off not naming that something and ethically aligning with the principles of Jesus. Does that make sense?
0: Okay. Okay. All right. You see what I'm
1: saying? You see what I'm saying? So, so the big thing, the thing that we would typically call God, let's leave that unnamed. But what we can do is look at these four Gospels and see what Jesus was doing. And what is Jesus doing? How is he living? He is a a racially, as I've said many times in public engagements, he's a racial minority from the hood. This is this is what he is born to a single teenage mother who is sold out by one of his boys and killed by the cops. Like you all are celebrating. Christianity is is celebrating and lauding Tamir Rice. Right. I mean, like, like. Yeah, this is important, yes. right? Like yes. this is important. Yes. You, to Mike Brown is your savior, and I don't mean that in some like I hate to say, but that's what we're looking at, mm. right? Mm. A racialized mm. minority gets killed by the cops, right? Yeah. So, so, do you see what I'm saying? So that's kind of that. That's how I think about it, is that we have to rethink these narratives. And James Cone in the cross and Across the Lynching Tree gives us some of these answers that. You know, (laughs) that, that the cross was a first century lynching. And if that's the case, then Mike Brown is a 21st century crucifixion, right? We have to think about these two things in tandem with each
0: other. Yes, man. Well, I think, too, I mean, I think what's interesting, I mean, because in times I think of peril, and particularly within the capitalistic, this Western capitalistic society, it's like... The tendency then is to return right to like, let's bring to normal. So one of the one of the issues then, right, is like, okay let's impeach Trump. And if we impeach Trump, then everything will be okay. Like if we just get him out of office. But I'm just like, man, I think for the first time, the broad broadness of the United States is seeing how infected the system is with white supremacy. It's like the justice system, the food, the education. I mean, and so what if you've got, you know, Ben Carson as, as the head of housing It's just like, man, this dude is just, he's out to lunch anyway, man. So it's like, <laughs>
1: what,
0: what then have you engaged with as, as moving forward? I mean, what are, what are some of the things you come up against, particularly from other folks? Cause I can imagine African-American male, we have a rich history, right. in the black mm-hmm. church, what are some of the things that what are some of the resistance then that you run up against in in regards to that man I mean when you say man all cars and take me, man, I feel when you saying that cuz it's like I know people still trying to figure me out when I say, look, man, I'm not an evangelical. Don't identify mm-hmm. me as one. Don't put me in that box. I'm not okay. that, I mean, I spoke at a chapel and people were like, but I fell out. They were like, well, then who are you?
1: Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's difficult to, it's difficult to articulate to people. Mm-hmm. I, I think, I think, but I think also if we look at Jesus we see Jesus constantly wavering. This is not, I mean, if we pay close attention mm. to the gospels We're not dealing with someone whose faith was completely and totally unshakable, right? And, And I think we have to take that narrative seriously. Because if it was, why is he saying why why is he telling God that God had forsaken him on the cross? There's no reason to make that, there's no reason to make that claim if 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 you just you're just down for the cause, right? There's a way in which there's a wavering there, right? God, if you could take this burden off of me, right? Please do. Cause there's some bad stuff about to go down and I really don't want to deal with it. Right. Right. So I say, I, so I say that to say, we don't have to move beyond the text to understand, to have a more rigorous understanding of Christianity that is more ethically expansive Mm -hmm. and more, and quite frankly, more ethically upright. All you have to do is look at Jesus who is constantly checking his faith, right. Constantly thinking, um, constantly thinking expansively and, and, and constantly re revising in, in many ways if you look at how he's doing things revising his position because he has to yeah right yeah you, you, see, you see like that? Yeah, i mean it's just it, and so and, and as it relates to trump which is so fascinating to me and i, and I tell i had to t- i had this conversation with my dad actually because he's more of an evangelical guy all right all and I, right. I, told him, I yeah and i told him i said pops you know He and I both kind of get that Trump's a problem. But I said, you know, one of the things that we have to stop doing is over spiritualizing the scriptures in certain times. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there's this part. I can't remember what specific book it's in, what letter is written. But Paul says, for we fight not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. Right. And so what we end up and so what we end up doing is saying, well, this is all demonic or whatever. Right. I'm with you on that. But is it possible that white supremacy is spiritual wickedness in high places? (laughs) Yeah. Right. Is it yeah. Well, yeah. so this is my response mm-hmm. to those of us, even within our tradition that are trying to say, oh, by the way, like, you know, we just need to pray. Well, yes, you do. But what do we do about this? We, we have to we, we have to exercise this thing. and And, and mm-hmm. sometimes and sometimes exorcism is a political act. Right. Do justice, love, mercy and walk humbly with your God. These three things are operative and they're necessary. And doing justice is not distinct from loving mercy and walking humbly. You've got to do all three of them, which means you can't just walk humbly and love mercy. You've got to do justice. You see what I'm Uh, saying? Go ahead. uh, So,
0: yeah. No, 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 brother. That is that's on point because I had somebody the other day say, we need to put Jesus before justice. And I kind of looked at that person and I'm just kind of like, wait, what? Like I've never separated the two out, but this notion, I mean, I knew where she was coming. She was white and she was one of my adjuncts. She'd been one of my adjuncts and I'm I'm thinking, okay, we at least on similar pages. But then when I hear you say Jesus before justice, that puts us in a different category because now that's, that's tapping into the aspects of, of, of social justice and inequality, stuff that right. as a white person you don't necessarily want to deal with, but you don't know how to say that. So I just don't want to have to deal with it because I have the privilege to, to not deal with it. So I don't want to, right. have to deal with it. So I'm curious, just in your own. And, and so, so look at that. I mean, how do you then engage with aspects of the New Testament? I mean, we need to get the Old Testament. Old Testament is just an interesting space in dialogue mm. altogether. When you think about a God that was angry and smoting people and smiting them, and you got David talking about bashing people's heads, they babies, his enemies' heads, babies against rocks and stuff, man. And I'm like, whoa, dang, David, man, you, 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 you got some, <laughs> You, you bought it, about it, brother. It's like good night, and you asking God for that. But did you right. get to Jesus? And Jesus is like, no, we have to love. We have to engage. We have to love our enemies. And then you just get a shitload of Paul in the New Testament. So I'm just curious, how have you been able to en- en- engage with that? I imagine some of the students coming in your classroom um, have had probably a heavy diet of that, you know, one way or another. Right. Um, right. What have been some of the, 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 the conversations taking place in that?
1: I, I teach a liberation. The, I teach two courses this semester, and one of them was the intro to African American religion course. And the other one is a liberation theologies course, an American liberation theologies course, actually. And so what I end up, um, I had to actually have a student who is constantly wrestling with this because we've made it near to the end of the semester. And he's like, we've learned black theology. We've learned womanist theology. We've learned Latino, Latina theology. We've learned queer theology. What do we do? with these theological frameworks when we try to square them against the scriptures and which one is true and I told him I said I I told him I said you know the truth of the matter is I can't help you figure out what truth is I can present to you various perspectives that you then have to wrestle with Mm -hmm. and I told him theology as Anselm tells us, right, is faith-seeking understanding. This is a consistent and dynamic process of, of, of gaining some sense of belief and then understanding it on the backs. So I think, and I told him the same thing. I said, you have to wrestle with this in many ways on your own. What I'm trying to do is give you tools to do the work, right? Such that, such that when you leave this class you will know that when people, when Paul is talking about spiritual wickedness in high places, someone like James Cone might see that spiritual wickedness as white supremacy, right? Mm-hmm. Someone, like, someone like Katie Cannon might see that spiritual wickedness as the conflation of racism, sexism, and classism,
0: mm-hmm. right? That
1: he's going to, to be able to make those analytic distinctions and then be able to develop something theologi- the- theologically informed on his own. And as a matter of fact, they are, uh, their final projects are to develop activist campaigns um, oh. based on that are theologically informed. um, I won't give everything away, but long and short, I've got a couple of groups working with uh, a gun violence campaign that they're trying to get people to do a a real rigorous advocacy for gun control. And I've got another group that's doing some work in terms of uh, black solidarity that I'm just excited about. And so I'm... Yeah, they're 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 figuring it out. And and in that regard, I mean, that's that, that's the best I can offer,
0: man. No, that is but well, see but that's powerful stuff, because I do think there's a challenge to those of us in the academy. I know. um, Oh, what's his name? Last year, they AR, you know, talked about, you know, what is the culpability of those of us in the academy, you know, that kind of resulted in this election? Like, you know, and I had to th- think long and hard about that, because it's right. like, man, I did. A decade on the adjunct trail, man. And then you get into the institution and then you got to like fight and you're not sure because of white racism. It's like, okay, am I going to stay here? Am I not? I got to go do this. I got to go publish that. And then you kind of forget. It's only you get blinders on. And then the next thing you know, you wake up and you're like, oh, man, this is not a situation. You know, it, you know, from a societal perspective that I want to be in. And so mm-hmm. it's challenging, right, you know, to try to do that. So, but I do think there's a, there's a call on us. I mean, I don't mean to make that like evangelical, like a call, but I do think as someone who's received a, a terminal degree, you've been trained to be an expert, to research, to write at that level. Um, for me, I look at it as, as a sense of like, how can I help the 20-something-year-old who's fresh off the cut begin to figure out that, man, life isn't what they thought it was? And then how can I begin to help them apply apply that in city spaces yeah. in rural spaces in in you know excerpt spaces and so i do think that's that's an important important part man so i commend what you're what you're doing there man um yeah. so let me take this as, in, in a different way because now we've got i don't know if you heard about the the new shooting that just happened uh in yeah. california and in, in a little mm-hmm. rural town in northern california man i know exactly mm-hmm. where that place is at and so mm-hmm. um one of the one of the quotes you put on, or one of the posts you put on, on Facebook on November sixth, He's a "Question: Why does anyone need guns? Um, and and don't hit me with the the self protection argument. That too is a form of violence. Either we disarm yes. or we face consequences. Reform, quote, quote unquote, is a dog whistle speech for we ain't gonna do shit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know if we can cuss on this, however." <laughs> <I'll have it. laughs> I, I, I yeah. Um oh man, Facebook <laughs> Facebook is, is, is a place where, where I have a social I have an avatar on Facebook. So I, I'm much more expansive than, than my avatar. But what I but I but what I will say is I, I stand behind the statement. Yeah. I think that every time we, we have to think we have to think historically, right? Mm-hmm. Um and, and actually, you know, and we have to also have to think about this from sort of a Charles Long history religions perspective mm-hmm. as well, which is there are two narratives that this country tells itself. There's a white narrative and then there's a narrative that it doesn't that it can't tell itself, which okay. is the non-white narrative. The white narrative tells us that we overcome everything, right? That that Black people were slaves, but 1863 happened. Black people got lynched, but 1964, 1965 happened. Black people weren't politically viable, but then 2008 happened, right? So there's this narrative that, uh, of perpetual progress. This is connected to discourses about guns, right? But the difficulty, the flip side of this is, is that while these things were happening in 69, there were a group of Black people who were using, who had guns, who were open carry. They were called the Black Panthers, and the country all of a sudden wanted to get gun control happening, right? right. So... So I bring that up to say we can no longer have this conversation about gun control reform. Mm. Because what it ultimately comes down to is y'all were y'all quickly reformed black folks when it came to the Black Panthers, right? You know how to do the work. You know how to do the work. Right. You just don't want to. So miss me with that. Either we're going to disarm, right? Either we're going to realize that this particular object, we didn't we don't have either the capability, or we either don't have the capability, or we don't have the the structural and ethical mandates to to handle these these objects correctly or we, which means that we need to get rid of them right or you put in place yeah real true structures a nobody no regular everyday person needs to be walking around with an ar-15 <laughs> right that, yeah. that 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 is what it is like this right. is not this is not this is not hard but i look at it and i say either disarm because quite frankly and i have i have to say this who are doing the mass shootings? White men. Yeah. Which is the only reason this country doesn't want to disarm. Right. Do you see what I'm saying? Like yeah. like like we don't want to disarm because because whiteness remains normative. And the folks on the left want to tell us that we need to reform things. And I can't stand that kind of language because ultimately we reformed the prison system. And now people got now people got ankle bracelets on. They, they just now they jail as they house. Right. 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 Reform. We were reforming the border control. And now now people can't even get in the country and we're like it's just reform is a dog whistle for making for essentially keeping things the status quo. Hmm. So, so I say that I say all of that to say. I'm an advocate for disarming, uh, but if, if we're not going to do that, then y'all need to get, Then and not y'all, but the country needs to get yeah. busy. You know right. what I'm saying? It doesn't need to get busy in terms of le- its legislative priorities.
0: Well and it's, interesting. well, and it's interesting when you think about just the amount of 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 white men just in the last two years. I mean, we, yeah. we I, I'm not even going back. I think between the year, that I was still adjuncting and I was teaching at a predominantly white evangelical institution um, and I was just keeping track um, it was the first time I got an iPhone, so I was able to keep track of, of stuff electronically of how many white men in particular were committing this mass murder. I think between the years of 2008 and about 2011 is when I stopped. There was one every week between those years. Every week. And Now, a lot of it didn't make the news. But it'd be one dude who was pissed off and he'd go and he'd kill his girlfriend, his girlfriend's family and all this stuff like that. So, OK, it's just oh, it's just domicile. But then it kind of just started increasing. So I'm trying to figure out on one end, some people say, well, look, black folks have had to endure so much. We have much stronger and better coping skills than white America. It's like white America loses a job. And it's like the first thing they do is like they go right. shoot up a all. Um right. But I but I'd love to hear your thought on the whole Las Vegas, uh, you know, shooting. I had a couple of special episodes on that, but I'd love to hear you that. And then I'd also love to hear what would be your your thoughts then on somebody saying, "Okay, look, as black folk, we've been told um to be peaceful and to be prayerful. And now, not take up arms, and that's a form of oppression as well. And we just need we we need to, you know, take back some sense of dignity, you know, through that." Like well, I'm I'm curious cuz I, I right. hear some of those 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 I want to say arguments, but just different ideological ideological structures as well. Those two questions make sense.
1: Yeah, they make perfect sense. Start with the first one. I actually had to do a panel about this, um, and it was it it remains on the top of my head. One of which is, and then at the panel I said we had uh, so at Vegas, and forgive me. This is what happens when the, when violence becomes regulated at Vegas. And then in between Vegas and the shooting in Texas, there was a guy who ran in New York City, he ran, drove a car and hit eight people, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, right? Mm-hmm. Right, if you remember New York City, two hours, two hours, I wanna be clear, two hours after the incident happened, the discourse of terrorism erupted within the political sphere, right? Terrorist. this was a terrorist attack, this was a, this was an attack on sanctity and the integrity of this country, right? It was very, 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 very clear in Vegas and in this Texas shooting, and then I'm going to assume it's going to happen in the California shooting. What we continue to see is an absolute aversion to using the language of terror to talk about white violence. Mm. And because we continue to avert our gaze away or avert our language away from this, and this isn't just Donald Trump. This is also this is literally the media doing this as well, right? So, so the, guy in, in, hmm, the guy in Vegas was a country music lover, right? This, yeah. They eulogize. They, I, I wrote a piece about this. I wrote two pieces about this, that, they, that we eulogize white men when they commit acts of terrorist violence. That's what the media does. We say a good word about the person after they've done something horrible because we don't have the language for white terrorism. Or I will say it this way, the country doesn't have the, the language for white terrorism. Mm-hmm. Black folks mm-hmm. been, been having a language, being called out as such. <laughs> right. right? Black Lives Matter is is a language that articulates white terrorism as such. So let me be clear about that. But 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 so that's the first thing is that I think that moving forward, we have to start being very honest about what terrorism is, and terrorism is not limited to the brown person connected to a larger organization doing certain things. Terrorism also. I'm not saying that wasn't a terrorist attack, but terrorism also is these folks doing these shootings and terrorism is also the state sanctioning these mm. folks doing these shootings mm. through certain discourses. Mamani Perry said it best after, um, I believe, Philando Castile's shooter got, got off. She said, I am terrified, not not of being killed, but of the possibility that my legacy will be tarnished after I'm dead. Like, what does it mean that like you can't get justice like that's terror yeah. to be able to yeah. realize that my kid could be killed and I and the person who killed him could be walking out having a ham sandwich the next day like that's And because we don't own up to that, there, there's that. So I will. So I would say that we need to start by by re, by like teaching in many, many ways, teaching or educating or however you want to talk about it, letting people know what terrorism is. Number two discourses of violence and nonviolence what I will say here and I'll be make this very very brief number one i'm not I am not nonviolent i'll, I'll be I'll be clear about that but what I am is and I want to be I want to be what I am is a person who understands that there are many ways in which political gains can be can can be can be had right but I also think that some of these some of these particular movements, as I, I'll give you a brief in 2014, we were marching around the galleria and a group of us walked into um the mall. This is, galleria is a mall, this huge mall in Houston, right? And we did a die-in. People laid down in front of stores. Cost the mall something like twenty thousand dollars that day. This is during Christmas season, mm. during the high time. Oh, this, is this, is, this is for Mike Brown. for Mike Brown, right? Yeah, so we, yeah, folks and walked in, they shut down sales. We can shut down stores. We're doing this. That in and of itself is an act of violence, not an act of physical violence, but it is an act of violence against the of, against the capitalist yeah. order. Yeah, you have. And, and, and it's a it's we had to weaponize our bodies. Right. Had to lay down in front of these stores so that if you want to get in, you got to step on us. <laughs> right. Right. So so I would say that that's a way for people who are like, oh, like, well, no, like, nonviolence is actually an assertive form of engagement as well. I, I think that I think that we have to stop playing these bifurcated games about which strategy operates better than the other one does. Because there might be times, there may be a time, I don't know if it'll happen in my lifetime, but there may be a time where it would be possible for black people to to steal away to the mountains and develop a guerrilla warfare tactic. I don't know if that's gonna happen anytime soon, Mm. right? I don't know if it's gonna happen anytime soon, but if it does, I'm down. But but if it isn't, we have to continue to be thoughtful. We can't get killed all the time trying to fight for justice there has to be a way to 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 balance that i think so that's how i would i would, I would, I would. that's
0: good that's real good i mean that's a really good very thoughtful response on you know engaging this because i think yeah. you're right i mean because i was going to ask you that and i know we're all earning right, at the 40 minute man that time just flew by brother man <laughs> um but you know i think there is a sense that okay, what does and I don't know. I mean, I I, I kinda type in tap into a little bit of uh oh, what's his name? Adorno in this sense that mm-hmm. I think that media has is quelled a lot of the revolution, right? It's like we're gonna right. just turn to so you think he can dance, or we're gonna turn to another talk show, or we're gonna turn to something some new video or some new thing that, you know, Puffy's changing his name. He's not Puffy anymore. And so right. it, it squelches because you know, it's like me think about a hundred years ago people didn't mean, he's like, you sitting, you sitting in your squalor, you sitting in your, and it's so, what's his name? Uh, Oh, the Russian philosopher says it, man. He says, man. Yeah. And he Mm -hmm. says it like this. He's like, man. And i mean, you know, I know he has his issues too, but he he has some interesting stuff to say. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. when he's talking about like, you know, global climate change, he said, it's, it's, you cannot begin to, make change if every day you walk out and you see blue skies and green trees and you're like, well why why would I want to change? He's like, you gotta come to the dump. You gotta go to the shit. You gotta actually go into it before you can actually begin to see, man, what needs to actually change. And that's part of as an educator what I try to do with students and, and try to, and you know, not bringing them to shit, but it's just like, you know, let me take you into the city, right? We're right in the middle of the city. At the same time I'm wondering mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> mhm. No, go, keep going. Okay. 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 <laughs> I know exactly where you're at. it. Oh, geez, geez. okay. Well, I mean, if you know, okay, uh, I think we know where to go. What what would how would you then how would you respond? You know what I'm saying cuz that's the other side of it, right? It...
1: <laughs> I have I had this it's so difficult, right? I mean, it's It is the question of the ethics of pedagogy. Right. It's and and I look at it. This is so Sadia, Sadia Hartman has this book called Scenes of Subjection. Mm -hmm. And in the very first and in the very first page, he goes, there is this scene at the beginning of Frederick Douglass's narrative that I'm not going to repeat. Why? Because it's too violent. And I don't want I don't want want to, to play into that game. Right. And so what happens is, is sometimes bringing people to the shit can backfire. Yeah, right? Yeah, right, right. So that, so that's the because what happens is some people were some people like like they fetishize the dump. They they find the dump mm-hmm. as a place where it 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 stops to stink. Right, it right. It, it, it it ceases right. to have the pungency. And so you have to figure out, you know, how do you do that? And I and I wish I had the answer. All I know is is that. We we looked at a video of John Crawford in my in my intro to Afram religion course, mm. and we looked at a video of John Crawford getting killed. Man holding a toy gun that was sold by Walmart and got killed in the Walmart for holding holding a toy gun that was sold by the store. We watched the video and the white students were shook, didn't mm. know what to do. Wow, just didn't know wow. what to do, and that was powerful, and yeah. that was fantastic. And then I look at my looked at my black students and they were shook too, but for different reasons yeah. Yeah. right like like what do you do <laughs> like because some of us know and i don't i'm still figuring that out what i do know is is that these folks need to realize what it means like like what their what what what's the cost of their comfort wow right they yeah. need to understand the cost of their
0: comfort um mm.
1: uh, that is and, and and i'll and i'll leave it there but but that's that's what they need to realize yeah understand the cost of your comfort
0: Yes, brother. I mean, I'll say this real quick again. I know you know time and everything, but man, I think it's interesting because I've been a part of an organization that you know considers itself you know community developers, and we come in and everything. And I think you know this stuff talked started back in the '80s and the '90s, and then now we we're in a place now where the inner city of Chicago is no longer that connotative word of the inner city, right? Where where we look at good times and JJ the, the the housing projects, right, that were there once there are no longer there and are replaced by seven figure in some cases, eight and nine figure condo apartments that people are paying cash for.
1: Mm. They're not mortgaging.
0: They're paying cash for it. Mm. And so when I think about that and people say, Oh, I ain't got no money. I'm trying to raise some funds and people are paying 11 million, 9 million, 15 million for condos in downtown. It's like, Hey, I'm moving into the city and I'm just like, I got, those are the things that I think like you're right. I mean, the shit then. Well, I can fix this and I can fix it. And then the white supremacy takes over. And the next thing you know, you have developers trying right. to bid out and then you have people displaced families that I've worked with. are moving 45 minutes to an hour and a half outside of the city because that's all they can afford now.
1: Absolutely. It's a it's a it's something you, you gentrification for me. Gentrification. So I actually gave a talk on this a year ago, and I said gentrification and criminal justice are two intertwined issues. What we, what we, often, see, what we often see happen is, and it's colonization, it's just internal. We don't call it colonialism anymore because that's the bad word, but that's exactly what's happening, mm-hmm. is that you show, you show white folks the dump, and they say they want to help save the dump, but their idea of sa- saving the dump is colonizing the dump, right? <laughs> right? So yeah. and so, the way that they colonize the dump is they they come in and they bring the trash the trash bins and they take it out and throw it at the landfill. Here's the problem: what you've done is you've essentially evacuated folks who found the dump to be a place of refuge. And I don't mean that in this like messed up like. I mean like black folk have been living fantastically and powerfully and 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 joyously, right, for for quite some time. But what what we're demanding is not for you to come in. And 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 whiten up a black space, what we're demanding is that you is that you literally find a way to make these resources equitable. That and, which means that's what I'm saying. But what they see is the dump has to be cleaned up, which means we'll move in, we'll we'll set everything down, and we'll tear everything down. And the way that we do this is is where, that we find ways to arrest a whole bunch of black folk, get them out, and the next thing you know, Whole Foods and Yoga Pants and Soul Cycle is on the corner. Oh, brother. I, it's great it's, it's, but, but you know but you know this is what it's it's colonialism but right, we don't right. call, but we don't call it that right we because we don't because these folks don't they see it as saving the, the space and no right, all you've right. done is destroyed another space and made it that much harder for for folks who are living in that space to Ooh. get to, to get anything to happen cash did you say cash, cash. i was i couldn't Cash, cash, brother. let the cash, cash, brother. You know what I could do with eleven million dollars, cash. Give me two, just give me two, right? Give me. You know? Do you know what I could do with two? I could build a community center with two mil cash, easy money, and we could have a a full fledged setup, right? I could I could out Black Panther to Black Panthers with two million dollars. Hey, y'all. Go ahead. No, go ahead. no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go no, ahead. I'm, just saying, I'm just saying. You got you got people out here paying cash, cash money for, and and the amount of money that they're using is absolutely exorbitant. And then we sit up here from and from a Republican administration and say we're going to continue to cut taxes for people who make that kind of money. You got you. Makes no sense, but right. if but but if you but if you realize and to bring it all the way full circle that white supremacy is spiritual wickedness in high places, then you realize that white supremacy does not understand itself to either be colonialist or it doesn't understand itself to be violent or evil. Wow! Right? Wow. So that's so that's it. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I Bob
0: Cash oh. Cash Hard Cash Cash, brother. And that's, anyway, yeah. and because, you know, these things, these, these records are public. I mean, you don't even got to, I mean, you got to dig that hard to go and look for them and stuff, man. I had a realtor friend telling me, but it's like, you go and look, and people are paying cash. There's no funding. I had to fund my little $200,000 house. Right. right. <laughs> and struggling to pay.
1: For like, a month. What you mean? What you mean? Like, like, you know, people go to college behind that. Like, great. I, I, I mean, like I, I owe a couple houses in educational debt. Like, Real talk, so right. I, I get it. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I, I I didn't, you know, I didn't want to go on. That. I didn't mean to go, but like that, nah. it it it's the nature of whiteness and white supremacy, and we have to make these, we have to use these terms specifically because white people hit me with this. Well, I don't think that way. Well, the fact that you told me you don't think that way means you think that way. Like I hate to say it like that, but <laughs> that's true. right. But
0: right.
1: number two, but like it's the nature of whiteness to not know that it's white. Right. It's the nature of whiteness to not understand as a thing in the world Mm -hmm. and as long as that continues to operate we have to continue our exorcist work to get this kind of stuff to Mm. to get people to understand Mm. whiteness is a thing and it has to be banished
0: yeah Wow, brother. Well, this has been an amazing forty-plus minutes, man. I uh, <laughs> thank you. I'm going to, have to get you definitely back on. man. I say that to almost everybody who comes through, but I mean that, man. I'm like, this is we just beginning. Um, real quick, man. Where can people find you? What are you working on now? What's uh, What's yeah. what's happening? Where uh, when people want to con- contact you?
1: Yeah, uh, you can catch me uh, online at Facebook, typically. Uh, Biko Mandela Gray, B as in boy, I-K-O. Mandela, like Nelson Mandela, uh, G-R-A-Y. Uh, and then my Twitter handle is the same exact thing. My full name, Biko Mandela Gray. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm on social media. I'm trying to learn how to be more social media savvy. But <laughs> we're figuring it out. Uh, no, and, and, and just to leave folks with this, I'm working on a book right now um, that, will, that will... It's a philosophy of religion that's trying to argue that race and religion condition subjectivity. Um, and so what I'm trying to essentially say really basically is to draw from the lives and deaths of Tamir Rice, Alton Sterling, Ayana Stanley Jones, Sandra Bland, and a host of Michael Brown and a host of other folks to raise questions about what their lives and deaths can tell us about race, religion, and subjectivity. And so that's the project that mm,
0: I'm on. Um, wow. Yeah. Brother, when it, when it drops, you let me know, I'm going to bring you back <laughs> home, man. We'll probably even try to get you to Chicago out here, man. <laughs>
1: We'll okay. see, man. Well, I'm going to try. I got I got to do something with this thing. But nah, thank.
0: You. I hear that, man. Well, hey, man, thank you for the work that you're doing. Really appreciate it, man. And and just love the scholarship that you're bringing up, man. I mean, I think we need we need some more brothers like you. man. So thank you. Really.
1: I appreciate you. Thank you for having me on here. I had a fantastic time. I know I talked a lot, but nah,
0: I'm passionate about these issues, man. So, nah. yeah, that's what's up, man. Well, thanks, brother.
1: OK, we'll talk soon.
0: Hey, man. I told you. I always tell y'all. I tell y'all y'all gotta be ready for that, man. All right. Well, look, I ain't gonna take too much of your time. Uh, a couple things I want to mention. Uh, at the beginning of the show, I mentioned uh, sponsorship. Can you believe that? We are sponsored. Actually, we got a couple sponsors going on. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, the Mystic Soul Conferences as well. as coming up. I'm going to talk more about that coming up. But for this week, I want to talk about Theopoetics, this uh, space for thinkers, doers, and makers. Um, I'm going to put the website in the show notes. I'm also going to put a, a page up on, on a website, whitehodgepodcast.com. Um, this is conference coming up here in 2018, March 9th and 10th. I'm going to be presenting as well. Um, I'm going to be out there. I don't even know what I'm going to be presenting on, but I know I'm going to be there. And this is an interesting place. So the person who's really running with this is uh, Khaled. Uh, We had him on the show a few weeks back when I talked about white allies. So you can go check out that podcast and listen to, you know, what what he has to do, because he really presents a great intersection of this sense of embodiment, the sense of space and place as it relates to social justice, race, uh, ethnicity, politics. Um, And what I love about Khaled, and I've said this, you know, in the, um, you know, when I was in the podcast, uh, interviewing him and having a conversation with him, is that he's, he's, He's authentically white and who he is. But at the same time, he's able to continue to push deeper and to learn more about his own whiteness and where he sits right in that white supremacy. Uh, and that's a rare thing, particularly for white males. It's really hard for white men to overcome a lot of their privilege and a lot of their positions of power uh, because it's just it's always been there. Right. So um, I'm excited about this conference. I'll continue to be promoting it. Like I said, we're going to be talking about this from here until March. And so uh, if you're listening, hopefully you get a chance to get out. It's good places. It's going to take place out in Boston. Um, and so um, it's good stuff. Like I said, more information is coming. I'll post to the website. But for now, Theopoetics, a space for thinkers and doers and makers. I'm excited because it's just an eclectic group of people coming to talk about what does it mean to have art? And what does it mean to have theology and race and all those things right in one space? That's a beautiful thing. Speaking of that, again, uh, talking with Dr. Gray and listening to him, you know, reminds me just again, the importance of um, education. Now, I know those of you saying, look, Dan, I don't have an education. I, You know, maybe I just got a GED. Maybe you just got a BA. I ain't talking about the formalized education. So much I think of education has been put on as this one-stop shop for all. I mean, let me tell y'all, it is difficult out there right now with a PhD trying to get a job in the academic world. I got very lucky. I was very fortunate to end up at the university that I'm at, but that is definitely not the realm or reality for a lot of people. So... Um, you know, I tell folks, I'm like, man, you need to think twice about, you know, this degree that you fixing to get if you want to go the whole way and get a terminal degree, because if you want to teach, it's tough. And especially if you're an ethnic minority, a woman, a woman who's an ethnic minority, it is tough. And so, um, it's just a reminder that education, when I say education, it doesn't necessarily mean the formal realm of that. I'm mainly talking about how do you continue to push yourself to learn? I think when you stop learning, when you stop all that, that is when traditions kick in and you just start to just live off that. Just the the, like what I like to call trail horse Christianity or trail horse theology. When you in your spiritual development, you just kind of just follow what's ever in front of you. Right. It's like, okay, what's the newest fad of what's the, the newest thinker? Right. Which is usually another white man telling you, oh, you know, prayer of this or, you know, think this way, whatever and stuff. And it's just like, no, 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 let me push beyond that. Let me think a little bit more, and and that's part of that education. But just because I have a PhD, that I means that was that's an education that I received ten years ago. If I'm not continually updating myself, then I'll be talking about stuff ten years ago, right? There's a lot that has changed in ten years. There's a lot that has 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 developed. There's a lot that is backslidden since you know since since two thousand and seven. So you know, it's a continual process, no matter where you're at on the spectrum, it's about pushing forward and learning more and challenging yourself to, d- to dig into that. Um, so if that's where you at. That's great. I encourage you to keep doing it. And you know, part of what this show is trying to do is trying to expand our minds uh, on that, not here to convince anybody and to get you to agree with me, but I am getting you to, to try to hopefully think a little bit more critically, particularly as it pertains to our faith and our theological development. So, Hopefully we'll continue to do that. So without any further ado, I'm going to sign off here. Thank you so much for everyone who is listening and subscribing. Uh, For those of you, I know I mentioned um, show notes a lot. So again, that's on our website, whitehodgepodcast.com. You can go to our Facebook page on White Hodge Podcast as well. There's some stuff there. And if you forget all of that, you can just go to whitehodge.com and it'll link you all back to all of that good stuff as well. Thanks, y'all. I will see y'all in a week. Peace.